Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast as we walk through the book of Mark. If you have any interest in the other sermon series we're doing, other podcasts, things like that, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. to talk about today. Yes, we do. We said we were going to talk about the political groups at the time of Jesus. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> yeah, because I think sometimes we we read scripture and we see Jesus and we forget that there was a political climate mm-hmm. that influenced a lot of his interactions. We're like, oh, he just said these things in a vacuum. You know, there's a lot going on. A lot of the things he said, he said to specific people. Right. For, for a reason, so. Very much so, and and even the disciples that he chooses have curious backgrounds yeah. sometimes. Yeah, and affiliations. Right. When you hear things like this guy named Simon the Zealot, Ooh. you go, "What does that even mean?" Yeah. So let's let's dig in. So let's start with Pastor Alex. Walk us through what does what does post exile begin to look like? <laughs> yeah. So Jesus lives in something that we call the Second Temple Period because. The second temple was built, right? Solomon's temple was the first temple. Correct. Really big, really cool. Everyone loved it. Um, gets destroyed. The Babylonians destroyed the first mm-hmm. temple, right? So Babylon comes in, destroys the first temple, uh, returned from exile, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, all that kind of stuff. Ezra builds the temple, Nehemiah builds the walls. That temple overseen by Ezra, mm-hmm. that's the temple that Jesus went to. Like had some renovations along the way. Right. But basically that's a temple. So you have the people are back. Their worship now looks different, returning from exile. Things look a little bit different. And there's a couple hundred years of history. Well, in that history, there's a couple really big events that happen Mm -hmm. to the Israelites. And I think we really got to dig into these. And the first one is our, our good buddy, Alexander the Great. Yes. I was named after, by the way. So really, there you go. Yeah. These are like besties. Yeah, me and him. We hang out all the time. Um, <clears throat> I've outlived him now, so you have. I remember when I was like, you know what? I've now lived longer than Alexander the Great did. So it didn't take ha. it didn't take much to pull that off, no, though. No, he well, died. Thirty three, right? Yeah, I'm thirty four. So there you go. So take that. You beat Jesus and Alexander the Great all in one shot. Oh man! So Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the whole known world, or you know what was known to right. the Greeks at that time, including. Israel. So right. Israel now lives as a conquered nation. They now owe their allegiance to Greece. And that's where the Greek language comes into the area, what we call Koine Greek, that version of ancient Greek that um, was spoken by Jesus in Jesus's day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have spoke Hebrew, of course, Aramaic as well, Greek. They were multilingual. Uh, that's because Alexander the Great came and conquered. Well, a number of years after Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom split up. The Romans come in, and our, our good buddy Julius Caesar comes and conquers most of what Alexander did, um, including Israel. So now we have a nation that's been conquered twice Yes. in the last, I don't know how many years is we talking, like 100, 150? So 330 would have been Alexander the Great-ish, and then the the Romans would have done it 
you know, 25 BC. So within 300 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's about 300 years, yep. but they've been conquered twice. And the Romans have a different type of a rule. <clears throat> so they allow you to continue your form of government basically as a puppet state. Mm-hmm. And they have two rules for you. Uh, one rule is you got to pay us taxes. And so that's why they put tax collectors, they recruit local collaborators to collect the taxes and send them back to Rome. And that becomes a really lucrative job for that individual because the way taxes worked in that day, Rome said, hey, we want X amount of dollars or denarii, whatever, per person. You can charge whatever fee for collecting that tax on top of that as long as you pay us this. And we're going to enforce it as Romans because there were Roman guards all over. You know, Jesus interacts with Roman centurions. That's why these guys are there because they are basically, I'm using quotes here, the peacekeepers of the foreign power that has conquered this nation. Uh, so that's their one rule. You got to pay taxes. Rule number two, can't rebel. Right. And if you rebel once, they come in and push you kind of hard. You rebel a second time and then they just wipe you out and yep. they, they get rid of your government. They let you, you know, they're letting you run your little puppet government for a while. They're letting you kind of rule yourself. But if, if you rebel, they're going to come in and wipe you out. And so there was an initial rebellion against the Romans, the the Maccabean revolt. Mm -hmm. And as great as it was that they purified the temple in Hanukkah, that story comes from the Maccabean revolt, uh, the Romans did squash that rebellion. Like Israel did not become an independent nation. And so they already have that one strike against them when we get to Jesus' day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super important when we start talking about some of these other political parties in the puppet state because they know that they already have one strike. And that's in their minds. Hey, mm-hmm. something happens again, uh, we're going to get in really big trouble. And we'll kind of unpack that as we go. But let's let's stay chronological here. So Romans are have conquered, and then they set up a king, a king that they say, hey, this guy will kind of rule over the area. Right. So, Chris, who's the king? So, the king is really known by his family name, which is Herod, and they call him Herod the Great. All of his children and wives and everybody else seem to have some kind of name that deals with Herod, right? So, Herod Antipas, Herod Exeter, Herodias. So, they he is half Jewish, half Idumean, which is a an offshoot of the Edomites, that's actually, you can actually hear the word in there. I do me and Edomites, right? It's very connected. So he's not fully Jewish, didn't really practice Jewish tradition, but because he made as much money off of the trade routes as he did, which I do Mia is right on the edge there. Right. Herod's taxation along the Jordan River was so heavy that Herod made bank, so much bank. That he's this, building palaces this, to himself and everything. This is else. like crossroads area, like huge. Tons of people are going through this this area. Yep, and it's not just taxing Jews; it's taxing everybody. So, if you imagine you're a Persian merchant who's trying to get to Alexandria, Egypt, which just had just had a huge influx of cash because Mark Antony led a rebellion and lost, but all of the money that was used to build the army and everything else is still sitting there. So, you have people to trade with. Where? How are you going to get from Persia to Egypt? Yeah, right Straight down the through. Jordan River. Yep. So every single time that there's a, a textile, any type of 
you know, shipping of gold or spices or anything else. It's got to go through that, that region. And this Idumean king becomes so wealthy that the Romans make a connection with him. And the new Roman emperor at the time, Augustine, who is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, he looks at Herod and he says, I don't know if I can trust him, but he's willing to pay me a lot of money. Let me, let me show him that I'm willing to give him a little inch and make him king, but he's got to give me X amount of money. And, and that's the deal. And so the, the Romans didn't want to lose him because he actually right. was the highest paying king of all the Roman empire. At least that's how, as far as the reading I've seen, that's, that's true. So he's giving a ton of money to Rome in tribute. And then also to get it back, they have a guy who can squash a rebellion if need be. Right. Do you see like the administrative genius of the Roman empire here? Like you can't direct rule all these places that they've conquered. Right. So they just get guys that they know can kind of oversee an area and just give them money. Cause that's all that, that's all, that's what they want in Rome. They just want all those kickbacks to come, yep. come to them. So set up a little puppet government here, set up a little, yep. call this guy King over here, over there, let him run his show. Just send us the money. Yep. And Herod being half Jewish, half Idumean is trying to gain favor with the Jewish people. Right. So while he's building himself these palaces, he also begins to invest in major works projects in Jerusalem to win over the affections of the people. Specifically, one of them is to overhaul Ezra's temple. Right. And so he comes in and just builds, it ends up being bigger than Solomon's at this point. It, it becomes huge. The temple complex under Herod the Great's rule is unbelievable. I mean, if you get to Jerusalem and you see it, they think they could hold half a million to a million worshipers. I mean, it's just enormous. Wow. Like it's huge. It's the, it's one of the, if it hadn't been destroyed in 70 AD, it probably would have been one of those wonders of the world. If, yeah. you know, uh, so just imagine with me, you've got this King who's a little bit shaky. He's trying to get everybody's affections, whether it's Rome or whether it's the Jews, he's walking a line he can't hold forever. And you've got a Jewish state that likes rebellion because they have one true God and they don't want to be told to worship a Caesar. Why would you? Right. I mean, that's against our rules. We wouldn't want to do that. The Romans are willing to give you a little bit of leeway and let you rule, but they've also got multiple legions sitting around waiting. So there's there's one legion in Israel, I believe, at the time of Jesus, and there's two just outside of Israel, one in Egypt and one in the Persian area. So they could squash rebellion. They could destroy most of Israel in a heartbeat if they needed to, which is what they do in 70 AD. So if you kind of just imagine the tension of that, but there's also this idea that we're letting a puppet government run the show. We're going to let these rulers decide how they want to do it. And you've got a ruler who wants to win the affections of the Jews. He's going to let them, you know, he's going to give them an inch. Right. And every once in a while, they're going to take a mile, but, but he's going to give them an inch. And so there he's letting these political parties sort of just pop up. And we call them political today. Really, we call them that because they did help run the government. Right. But they're more religious often than they are political. Well, in, in Jesus' day, there wouldn't have been that separation, right? Mm -hmm. Like our political climate is there's a separation of church and state. In Jesus' day, the, the church or religion was the, the state. Right. And so I, th I think that's one thing we have to understand because when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, these guys are both politically and religiously powerful. Yes. And so some of it, he's poking at their religious ideology but some of it, he's also poking at their political ideology. And and we can't miss that when Jesus starts poking at those two different things. Right. Right. So 
if Herod is is a guy who has gained power and he who's trying to like walk this line between Rome and the Jews, I think one of the first groups that we need to talk about is the Herodians. Right. So this is a group of people. Uh, it's not a huge group. It's not super large, but they're all fiercely loyal to Herod. And part of what the Herodians believed is if we serve Rome and do things well, Rome is going to give us money and we're going to be able to live how we want to live. This is sort of the, you know, live life and be merry, right? Eat, drink and be merry type of people. Well, the live and let live too, right? Yes. Like, again, Israel's already got a strike one on them. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, hey, you know, there's there's a way we can continue to live under Roman rule and still be ourselves and we both benefit. Right. And that's how they would look at it. And if you think about it, in some ways, this isn't dissimilar to some of our political meanderings today, which is sort of a, we'll just play by the rules. We don't really mean it, but we're going right. to do it this way. And then the Herodians are saying, no, we don't love Herod, but we're really fiercely loyal to him. And we're going to let him run the show because it lets us eat, drink, be merry. We get to do whatever we want to do. Tons of wealth, very small group of people. So this is a the 1% type. Uh, but they have a strong feeling of, no, we, we, we are allowed to do whatever we want to do. And in some ways, God will forgive us. So it's not that big of a deal if we live how we want to live. And that's it. Yeah. And, and these guys would have been looked at mildly as collaborators. Right. You know, because you got you to remember to get into, I think it's hard to get into our mindset because in, in my experience in America, we've never been conquered. We've always been self-governed or at least, you know, I can go and I can vote for my government but this is a nation that's been conquered. There's a foreign government and foreign soldiers in your town enforcing foreign rules mm-hmm. on your daily life. And so this group of people, the Herodians, are like, yeah, you know, we're okay with that because it's working out for us. Mm-hmm. It's going to make them not popular with some other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the first group. They're super small, but they connect with Herod, and I think they're important uh, to talk about. The second group that doesn't get mentioned in the scriptures a ton, but are wildly interesting and everybody's always talked about them is the Essenes. Right. And similarly small, like the Essenes weren't a really big group. Not a huge group, but so separatistic and so unique. They're they're mostly set up down by the Jordan River uh, in the land that we would, you know, today we we called them the caves of Qumran, right? So. But they they had ceremonial baths set up that allowed fresh water to come from the water table up, they were constantly bathing themselves. They had their own calendar. They had their own system of doing everything. They had a ton of scribes who were repeating the text. Most of what we have available from the first century AD and BC is what we have found in the caves of Qumran, which comes from this this mysterious group called the Essenes. Right. We call those the Dead Sea Scrolls, which the finding of those, right? It was like a little shepherd boy, like yeah. threw a rock in a cave, heard a crash, went in there and found some of the best material we have, right. uh, copies of scripture. But yeah, basically these were like the I don't know the modern modern day Amish or something. They're mm-hmm. like we're we're going to completely separate ourselves from mainstream culture. They were super concerned with purification, with ritualistic purification, with moral purification of their hearts, and they thought the only way we can do this effectively is if we're so distinct from mm-hmm. broader culture. Mm-hmm. So they separate. They live in their own little community. They write a lot of things down and put them in caves that end up lasting. 2,000 years. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's given us a lot of material. 
And if you think about it, this is actually the two sides of the spectrum at this point, right? right. So you have the Herodians who are very connected to, the, to Herod and they, they're okay with the system as long as they benefit from it. Everything's fine. Slightly religious, not super religious, but just enough to get dangerous. Right. The other side of the spectrum is we are so separatistic, we're done. We're, we're doing our own thing. They've built their own community. Uh, the Essenes had a couple of homes that they owned in Jerusalem. There's this strange moment where the, Jesus tells the disciples to go find the guy trying to get water. We know that's an Essene because women typically went to get the water unless it was an Essene. Huh. So, that. yeah, so there's this really neat connection there where Jesus has basically got some kind of connection with the Essenes. There's some some scholarship that's debating John the Baptist's connection to the Essenes. He might actually have grown up in that group. Okay. Because they, they had some people that would basically go up to the temple system to, to do their priestly duty, right? And then as soon as that got done, they'd head back down to the community, bathe themselves, and stay pure out yeah. in the, the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But a lo- highly educated, highly, uh, you, you know— literature-based group who are doing some tremendous things. So so there's the two sides of the spectrum. The Herodians who are fine with the world as long as we get what we want, and the Essenes who are saying, I want nothing to do with the world. It's going to taint me. It's going to make me dirty. Right. So those, those are kind of outside groups. Now let's go inside to more what's really political parties. So the, the government set up, which is a both religious and political government, mm-hmm is made of a group called the Sanhedrin. Correct. And that's kind of like their Congress. Mm-hmm. And the Sanhedrin has two main political parties. It has a conservative party and a liberal party. Now that does not match current American conservative right. liberal politics, but just kind of the idea of like conservatism that's like protect the old ways. We've been doing it this way where liberal is a little bit more secular and pushing right. uh, a different newer ideology. Right. Um, so let's, let's jump over to the liberal gl- group first who have almost no gospel affiliation but there's a ton happening in acts with this group. right so they are the sadducees the sadducees so the sadducees are the political party that is a little bit more liberal they are a secular party mm-hmm. they uh deny the existence of resurrection sure um jesus doesn't actually interact with them a lot i i personally think because they were kind of so far out in their beliefs from scripture that Jesus didn't like bother to spend time with them. And they didn't bother to spend time and challenge Jesus. Jesus was more with the other group, the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were half, half of the Sanhedrin. Right. A smaller group by population than the, than the Pharisees, which we're going to get to in a second, but the Sadducees. So it's a little bit smaller, but extremely wealthy, like Mm. unbelievably wealthy. Most of the priestly, set up in Jerusalem. They are the ones that oversee the temple system and that sort of thing. So the Sadducees have a tremendous amount of religious wealth that was corrupt. So there are a couple of times where Jesus says things about the temple system that are, he's actually taking on the Sadducees without people realizing it, Right. which is why they get so angry in Acts, because right. now the disciples are doing things where in the temple, right? I mean, so at the beginning of Acts, part of the reason why you start to see the Sadducees pop up is they're looking at their system falling apart, going, whoa, 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 I don't like these guys at all. But since they're so insulated in Jerusalem, and if you read the Gospels and how little time Jesus actually spends in Jerusalem, that's another reason why they don't really run into each other that much. Right, right. So then the other group is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, these are the ones that we are a little bit more uh, accustomed to hearing about. Sure. They're the more conservative side. Um, 
a little bit more populous. And the, the Pharisees and Sadducees don't get along super well. No. Just like any government that has two wings or two political parties. In fact, this is where uh, when Paul is before the Sanhedrin and he they start questioning him and he's like, hey, I'm just here because of the resurrection of Jesus. And then everybody, or the resurrection <laughs> of dead. And then they the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I mean, uh, right. yeah. And the Pharisees just end up in a big fight, and then Paul just kind of backs away. Yeah. He just kind of lobs an it's emotional grenade. Move. Yeah, yeah, it's a genius move. Yeah. Um, so the, the Sadducees start screaming, "There's no such thing!" And the Pharisees are like, "Yes, there is. The Bible talks about it." Yes, there. Yeah. But uh, so the Pharisees they have a little bit of an interesting history that I think we, you know, if you if you read the Bible a lot, if you're around evangelical Christianity, if you hear a lot of sermons, we Jesus throws a lot of shade at them which causes us to throw a lot of shade at them. And and they deserve it. They missed a lot of things in Scripture. But, one, there's a lot of Pharisee in all of us. Mm-hmm. And two, sometimes we shouldn't be so quick to put the blame on them when we do the same things. So Because the Pharisees, the idea was they loved God's law. And then they see this Roman influence coming in. Mm-hmm. And they say, we is, there's a group of people who say, we need to protect the integrity of God's law from Roman influence because the, the Romans were polytheists, right? Like had all these gods and half of our, half our um, planets today are named after Roman gods, Mars, Jupiter, those are all Roman gods. Mm-hmm. And so they create this group that says, we are going to protect God's law against Roman influence. And mm-hmm. that's how the, this party this group of people comes to be now they swung that pendulum too far and ended up loving god's law maybe a little too much to how can you love god's law too much they loved the practice of law more than they loved the person behind the law mm-hmm. as we put it that way yes and, and that's where we get into the idea of like legalism they became legalistic we care more about the the practice of the law than the person behind it um but we they, can be commendable to them that, Mm -hmm. hey, they said God's laws are so important. And so the the practice of God's law and then what becomes really important to the Pharisees because of that is the temple. Right. The temple becomes the place of their power and their worship. And remember, so this is is where this all comes together and it's just, it was mind-blowing to me the first time I kind of started putting these things together. When, When Jesus starts saying things that are stirring up ideas and thoughts in the Pharisees minds. The temple is so important. They need the temple to be who they are. They need the protection of their, of their ways against the Romans. Mm -hmm. We're already on strike one and we only get two strikes here. Jesus starts stirring some things up. What's going on in the Pharisees minds. If this guy thinks he's going to start another rebellion, like, uh, Judas Maccabees did a little bit more, a little bit, you know, what, the hundred years before seventy, whatever it was. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. A couple hundred, yeah, yep. yeah, a couple hundred years. We're gonna get strike two, and strike two, the Romans are gonna come in here and they're gonna wipe out this temple. Right. So part of their Jesus challenging their their religious mindset, some of their legalism, he's also challenging their political mindset mm-hmm. that says we have to stay in power, we have to keep things the way they are because if we mess something up here, then the temple's gone and we lose everything. Mm -hmm. And so they're so protective of the temple that I think a lot of their challenge to Jesus isn't just that he's challenging their 
their laws, like, you know, plucking grains on the Sabbath. Okay, that's challenging their law. I think they, I think if it was just that, they would have been just like, oh, there's this crazy guy who keeps on breaking the rules. It'll, he'll, people will figure out that he breaks rules. We don't want to follow him. I think they're more concerned that, wow, by gathering this group and these masses and thousands of people are following him around, this guy's going to start another rebellion. And another rebellion means, could it mean strike two? And strike two means we're going to lose the temple. And lose the temple means we lose everything. Mm-hmm. That's the political motivation behind a lot of the Pharisees challenging Jesus. Yes. Yeah, no, it's a huge part of it. And you can you can kind of even imagine the inner tension within the Pharisees because the Sadducees control the aristocracy of the temple. So when you're giving money to the temple to keep it up, you're actually giving money to the Sadducees to have them run the show. And, and the Sadducees are the priestly families that sort of decide who's the high priest. So I don't, by the time of Jesus, they're just sort of electing themselves every year. Right. They're going back and forth, right? Caiaphas and Annas are the two biggest names that you see in this time frame, And they're, it's father-in-law and son-in-law, and they're just sort of like deciding, oh, I'll be high priest this year, I'll be high priest this year. And the way that you became the high priest was just by giving the most money. Mm. So they would put in a massive amount of money, which kept the temple going, but you can imagine the Pharisees going, whoa, 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 that's not how this is supposed to work. Right. But they also know that the temple is incredibly important to their system and to the way that this works. And so they're caught in this catch-22 of we, we care about the temple deeply. We don't love the way it's working. Our arch enemies run the temple. But at the same time, we have incredible clout and, uh, and capabilities. And one of the things that you haven't mentioned yet is the Pharisees actually ran the, the synagogue system. Mm-hmm. So they brought this back from Babylon and it was really this idea of like, let's train our kids up. And, and the Pharisees believed be, we were exiled because we didn't follow the law. Right. So let's start training the law to our kids first thing. And so the, the rabbinic schools that eventually come out of this, right? The rabbis, what we call the rabbinic schools really started around 130, 150 AD, um, and the Pharisees sort of just disappear and become the rabbis. Like that's really how this goes. But for that 150 BC time frame, that's when the, the Pharisees start to pop up and they just start putting synagogues everywhere. Right. So there's one in Capernaum. There's one in Nazareth. There's one in, you know, as far as, right. you know, Hebron and Every Bethlehem. community would have yep. their, their little synagogue because when they're in Babylon, they can't go to the temple. Correct. And so where where does community happen? Where do we worship and read Torah on a regular right. basis. Where do we train our children? Right. Hey, let's create a place. It's kind of like their modern day church. Right. Yeah, very much so. And so they start plopping these all over the place. So you can imagine the amount of power that comes with the group of people that are running that system because you're, right. everybody's ch- children would have been taught by these people. They are the, the purveyors of the law. They're the ones that tell everybody how to think about it, what to do. I mean, the, these are the, I, I mean, I hate to make this correlation, but it'd be like, you know, the Southern Baptist convention or something. It's like, <laughs> it's a massive denomination, so right. to speak, who has political power, has means, and they're, they're, there's more of them than there are Sadducees. So they have incredible weight and, and they can throw their weight around. Influence, they can make the yeah. system go. And then you've got the Sadducees who are incredibly wealthy, but a smaller group. And those two don't get along. You start to see that Jesus is stepping into a powder keg right. of religious and, and political tension. Right, because even, even the Pharisees had... Two different groups, you know, like it's just like like mm-hmm. Americans, we splinter off and we say we don't like this one thing. So they right. had the Hillel, which uh, Paul was a Hillel, right? Mm-hmm. I and, believe so. And who was who was the other one? Shem Shemai Shemai Shemai. Yeah, um, 
the two big rabbis before Jesus. Yeah, the, and some of the biggest teachings that Jesus has, he actually takes them both on. Yeah. So some of the biggest teachings that you're thinking of, folks, if you're thinking of like what's a great message Jesus gave, like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he's interacting with both of those rabbis and, and kind of kicking them both in the teeth. Yeah. So you can imagine how offensive that is to the Pharisees. One group is listening to Hillel saying, this is what we're supposed to do. The other one's saying, no, 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 I'm Shammai. And, and they're listening to this guy go, no, they're both wrong. Now everybody's mad. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you see in the gospels, you know, you, you've got Jesus who's walking around like, hey, I'm going to destroy the temple in three days. Right. And the Pharisees are like, what? You're going to, you're going to do what? Um, so, so there's a lot of tension and that tension. Isn't just because he's, Jesus is hurting their feelings. Right. Like it's because he's challenging the, the way that they operate and their systems that they have in right. place so much so that you have instances like in Mark here where uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians are like, Hey, let's, let's talk. Yeah. And you're like, what are these two guys doing at the same table? And then you get times too, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the whole Sanhedrin can get on a bipartisan ep- effort to silence Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that's Jesus is walking into that situation. And right. some guys, he's having really good conversations, like Nicodemus, right? You've got this guy right. who knows the law, and he's like, I don't understand. But what's so interesting about Nicodemus is we hear about him in John 3, and then we don't hear about him till Jesus' death. He, he helps gather the body, and um, I, think the, I think the TV show The Chosen illustrates that really mm-hmm. well. Like, he probably was a believer— in Jesus as Messiah, but why do we never hear from him? Probably because he didn't, he, he wasn't willing to give up his, what his right. life was at that time. Right. He kind of becomes like a secret disciple right. that shows up later. Maybe that's, that's speculation, an argument based on silence. Why don't we hear from him? Sure. But interesting. But it's very possible. And, and you've got, so Nicodemus is a big one. Uh, Paul's going to be the biggest of the Pharisees right. who... And I, I don't even know if Paul, he might consider himself a Pharisee all the way to the end. I bet he does. I mean, he, he says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees in, in Galatians. So it's very possible that he's following Jesus, but still maintains his allegiance to the party just to stay involved in some way. So we don't want to give the impression that the Pharisees are all bad people. And, right. and you need to know that all of these people, they're not all bad people. You're typically going to hear about the most powerful, the wealthiest of this group or any of these groups. And if you think about that, of course you are. Why wouldn't you hear about those more than the simpleton who, you know, barely got out of rabbinic school or whatever? Yeah. Uh, that person's not going to have any impact in this. But the the big names that you're going to hear. So on this spectrum, back to where we started, we've got Roman influence. We've got Herod running the show. Next to Herod are these Herodians, small group, but powerful. With some allegiance to the Herodians, you'd have the Sadducees. There's some kind of connection there between those two. And they're a little more on the liberal side is what... Right. And again, we're not using that as a political term in American yeah, sense. Yeah, just yeah, very a, different than American politics. Very open to f- playing with the text and letting the text be a little wild is, yep. is really the way that we're talking about liberal here. The conservative side, you start looking at the Pharisees, and then the extreme side of that conservative group is the, the Essenes. Yep. And the Essenes would have hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees probably didn't think much of the Essenes, which is why some think that John the Baptist might have been an Essene, because the, who's coming out to find out why John's baptizing Jews? Yeah. The Pharisees. Yeah. So they're they're up in Jerusalem, some of them going, What what's going on down there? <laughs> like we right. need to go figure this out. And, and because of their their synagogue system, that was so important to them, what is being taught. And I think that's why 
one of the reasons that you can put in why they're so interactive with Jesus because Jesus is teaching and they're like, what is this teaching? He's doing a lot of this in synagogues, whereas the Sadducees are just kind of hanging out with their money. Uh, they're not doing a ton of right. of investigation on what's happening. Um, you want to hit a few more, at least one more smaller group. Uh, we got these guys called the Zealots that are floating around. Yeah, these would be like our quick hitters just to kind of close this out and give us a you know, kind of a quick intro to them. Uh, I don't think these groups will be talked about much by us in the book of Mark, so we'll just throw them out here, but the others will. So the Zealots are a big one. Uh, the Zealots seem to be a group that's sort of forming on their own, but what what would be the connection you would call them to today? I mean, they're kind of like the alt-right sure. of today. They're militant. Yeah, militant. They're willing to use violence to... Uh, promote their ideology, which was the banishment of the Roman rule. And really the coming of the kingdom of God. Right. So yeah. in, in their mind, they're thinking if we whip Rome and get them out of here, we can get this straight again and right. we'll be in charge. Right. And this is similar to the group that, you know, the Maccabean re- revolt. And this is also similar to, we haven't mentioned this yet in AD 70, there is another revolt. This is what the Pharisees were worried about. You know, Jesus dies around AD 33, 34, you know, however we figure that date out, but just 40 years, less than 40 years after Jesus died, uh, was it Simon Barjona? Is that Mm -hmm. he's number two. He leads a revolt against the Romans. The Romans are like that strike two. And what do they do? They, they destroy the temple and the temple has been destroyed since AD 70. Yep. And, and basically it was guys like these, the, the ones who were zealous and created this, mm-hmm. this party, this group of uh, people who were willing to use violence for their ends. And I think the alt-right connection to today is a good one. And we're not using that term. Right now, everybody's throwing alt-right to everybody. We're yeah. talking about somewhat separatistic, militaristic. Our goal is to wipe out the, the power. Yeah. So we're not saying, you know... It's such a catchphrase right now, alt-right, everybody's alt-right. That's not true. We're talking about the folks that are strapping up, saying, let's let's throw the government down. Let's make it our government. Let's make it right. And you could be a zealot and still have some affiliation with one of those other parties. Right. But you've kind of created your own identity for yourself. You're right. a zealot. Right. And the, like I said, these guys are willing to take up arms to accomplish their mission. They would have been close to like the Pharisees mindset, mm-hmm. um, kind of that conservative party really, really into nationalism, right? Like we, or, or is it yep. the zealots that are sometimes called Zionists or, or, or is that, that, that of, becomes a later phrase, but yeah, okay. it'd be a similar group. Yep. Yeah. Just that they want, uh, Israel to no longer be ruled by Rome mm-hmm. and the, the different way, you know, different groups have different ways that they're going to accomplish that. These guys are going to do it by sabotage, by murder, by creating violence uh, as much as they can to drive the Romans out. So, right. yeah, not to like, th- there's not a one-to-one to American politics. So no. if you start saying like, oh, this group is really like the Democrats and this group is really like the alt-right and this is the Antifa of the day, it's it's not, it's not quite that. No. So don't read too much into this just to try to help you understand like our, what right. what groups do we see in America that are willing to take up arms? Because on the other side, you could even say Antifa doing the same thing the alt-right is doing. Right. Uh, just on the other side, like, hey, sure. we're willing to take up arms against this. Uh, that's kind of who the zealots are. Yeah. I think the one other group that we, we want to throw out here, and, and we'll we'll talk about some of these things way further down the road too as, as other groups pop up, 
you know, the Samaritans will probably need its own podcast at some point and who they are. Uh, the, the, the group that I want to bring up though, isn't really a group as much as it is a, a class of people who are capable of something and that we would, the word there is scribe, right? Yeah. So a scribe is just someone who's able to read and write. And that comes standard today. Like most of us think, well, I, you know, everyone learns how to read and write. Well, I don't know about you, Alex. I've met a number of people who don't know how to read or write. Uh, they somehow, they somehow <laughs> chose to not pay attention in school and they, uh, you know, they just skated their way through somehow. But the scribes would have been, I, I don't know, maybe three to 5% of the population that can actually read and write, right. which should make you think about it. The vast majority of people in Israel aren't connected in any way to any of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say they aren't connected because they would have been followers of, you know, like Correct. if you went to synagogue, you might say, you know, I'm not a member of the Pharisees, but I'm a follower of this Pharisee, this particular Pharisee, or I'm not a member of the Sadducees, but yep. I follow that group, or I think that group should be in power. No, that's a good point, and that's a that's a good pushback. I, and I, what I'm saying is that they wouldn't have been a part of the party, right? They they would have been influenced by the party. It's a good way to put it, but they wouldn't have been in the party. But a scribe is just someone who's able to read and write, and who cares deeply about the law and is copying the law. Typically, right. these are copyists, right? And they would know it because they've been writing it down like crazy. Correct. But I, if I can cut in real quick, I, yeah, I think that's a good point you make. They're not they're not in the party, but they're influenced the party because remember, these guys can't vote. Right. And so in our political culture, like you can vote. So you can say like, yes, I'm in that party because uh, what's your affiliation to that party? Well, you just vote for them. And that's, or, you know, maybe you give money or something like that. Um, but in this day, there wasn't really a big push to, hey, we got to get Joe Schmo or, or Peter the Fisherman. We got to get him in the party because he, he's not voting for anyone. You know, right. th these guys are self-appointing or getting there because of their wealth and influence. Sure or their position in the synagogue. So, so yeah, the influence is like, Hey, we want your support, but more of just like moral support. Yes. We like you because, because you're not voting for any of these guys. Sure. So we're not going to push you to like be a card carrying Pharisee. Right. But ideologically you can find yourself aligning really closely to them. Right. And I would make the case that probably a fair amount of the disciples are probably more Pharisaic in their thinking right. than anything else. Right. Because they would have probably gone to synagogue. They would have spent time learning, you know, the word of God. They would have been taught. They probably had a rabbi that they really looked up to, you know, and right. then now they're looking for just ushering in the kingdom of God. And they're also in Galilee, which is the region where a lot of the rebellions have risen up. Right. Everyone's looking for something to come out of Galilee. So these scribes would have been the individuals that can read and write. They're copying the law down. They're all over the place. But you could be a Pharisee and a scribe. You could be a Sadducee and a scribe. Right. So you'll notice sometimes it'll say in the Gospels, the scribes of the Pharisees, that's determining what type of scribe they are. Other times you'll see things like the Pharisees and the scribes or the Sadducees and the scribes. And that's just saying these are just groups of people that are following them around. These right. are the history tellers. These are the ones that are making sure that we know what's going on. Right. And I think that's similar to the teachers of the law, which isn't big in Mark. We don't see that. Right. I didn't, I didn't look through Mark this week to say, oh, how many times is that used? But it's a similar mindset, people who understood and knew the law. Um, but it, if, we're, if we're coming to a close here, I think one thing that we really got to point out is we have all this political climate. Jesus interacts, but Jesus puts guys on his team 
in his disciples that kind of span the span the spectrum here of political parties, right, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking actually right now to see how many times teachers of the law comes up. Yeah. All right. While you're doing that, you know we have we have Simon the Zealot, and we know he's a zealot because he's called Simon the Zealot. It's in Mark chapter three. Yeah, it's really obvious. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, we have one of these, like, let's take military action against Rome. And in that same uh, 12 disciples, we have this guy named Matthew. And Matthew is a tax collector. And what are tax collectors? Tax collectors are collaborators with the foreign government that's conquered you. They, are, they have given allegiance to Rome so that they can work for Rome to collect taxes to send to Rome. Right. Like these guys are totally in bed with the Romans. And even if they're not Herodians, they would maybe be seen as those. Right. Yep. And so that's, you know, we all know they're, they're outcasts because they stole money, but really that they were outcasts because they were collaborators. You know, Mm -hmm. this would be like, I don't know what's political climate in America right now. Like us and Russia, we're not really friends. Let's just say Russia was able to conquer the United States. And now we had Russian like troops all over every city and then Russia put out a notice and they said, hey, we need people to come work for the Russian government. Who wants a job? I don't think any of us hopefully wouldn't be like, yeah, let, let's go work for Russia because we'll get rich. Like the rest of us would be like, wait, like these guys came in and squashed us and now are, are making us do all these things we don't want to do and we can't vote anymore and we can't rule. That's who Matthew is. He's one of the guys that said, yeah, I'll take the job. I'll take the money. That right. sounds good to me. Right. And you, so you have on the same team of 12 disciples here. Jesus has a zealot on one end and a collaborator on the other end. And he's like, we're going to work together as a team. Right. I think that's one of the most powerful things of the way Jesus does ministry. And Jesus is able to be, to span those political influences. Like Jesus was clearly yep. not in any one of these political understandings. And I think we can learn a little bit today that, I think our various political parties do good things. I think the various political parties do some bad things. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure. Well, I'll just be honest. Like, I don't think Jesus would have been a card-carrying member of any of the political parties we see Mm-mm. in American culture right now. And he shows us that by putting guys from two ends of the spectrum on his team and saying, hey, we're going to work together. Right. Right. And I think you... You know, I, like I said, you can make the case. I think Peter and Andrew have a, a very strong Pharisaical side to them. I could also make the case that John, the disciple, seems to have some kind of connection to the priestly class because he's in the high priest's courtyard with Peter at the end, and he's able to actually get into the Sanhedrin's trial mm-hmm. while Peter's out on the outside denying Christ. So, if you think about that, that's also a Pharisee and a Sadducee potentially. Yeah, he might have had he might have had the card in his back pocket to lay down and say, "Hey, mm-hmm. I get to." get to come in. So the, the, the text is intimating to us that Jesus has a very eclectic group of people following him and they have laid their allegiances aside to let him be king. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming to. That's where we're supposed to be. And so there's some of the political parties in a nutshell, the religious political tie-in. Yeah, that's the best we got for you. Yep, there we go.